presence. How many are happy to be in church today? Amen. Sometimes I feel like I need to go a little deeper. Other times I just jump in the river with you guys. That was amazing. Let's just go right into the world. Let's give it up for the worship band. They're doing an awesome job. Amen. How many like, how many of you are here like me uh, wishing you didn't pray for summer to come so much? Uh, because right about now you're regretting it as it's about like 90 plus degrees. Anybody regretting you prayed for too much sun? A few of us, okay. I'm like, okay, let's dial it back now a little bit, Jesus. We went from mild spring to intense, hot, humid summer. Which is funny because I was told that it could get humid in Chicago. Uh, and I came from New Orleans, so I was like, nah, I can't get humid here. Yes, it can get humid here. It gets very humid here. I'm surprised how humid it gets here because that was some real humidity yesterday, wasn't it? Those of you who might have been out, I rode my bike 20 miles and then I regretted every one of them as I laid in my bed with my face flush and my wife literally putting Advil in my mouth and putting the cup so I could drink it, uh, the water, I was about ready to pass out. Are you guys ready for the word? Say, I'm ready. Amen, amen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14, martyrdom and miraculous power. Martyrdom and miraculous power. You're going to see those two things happening in this chapter. There is a, a martyrdom that we witness, and we've been talking about him, and that's John the Baptist, and now we finally get to see how he died and what God did in his life and how great of a hero he was to us. And then we get to see some miraculous powers, and let me just jump ahead here a little bit because you, like me, might be wondering why doesn't God just save John the Baptist? Why is it Jesus can walk on water, he can raise the dead, he can do all of these awesome things for total strangers, but yet for his best friend, his cousin, he lets him get beheaded and die. And uh, that's something you got to keep in mind when you're going through your Christian life is because you might say, Lord, why is it you heal this person way over here in Africa or in Asia or in China? Why are you doing that? When we have a precious sister, we have a precious brother, we have somebody we all love here. They've been going to church this whole time, and now they're dying or they died. You see, those are the kinds of questions that you ask yourself when you take the Bible serious because if you take the Bible serious, you believe God does miracles. Amen. And so why doesn't he do miracles at these times? And I don't have all the answers to give you in this passage. We would have to go to other passages. But I can just start off by saying two things. Number one, God loves us more than we'll ever know. Okay, so we just got to trust him. God loves us more than we'll ever know. And then number two is that we do have a role to play on this planet. We do have a role to play. And when, when our role is done, we're going home. And I know a lot of times we feel like, man, our role shouldn't end here. And there's ways that we could get around this and all these kinds of things. Yeah, but let me just tell you, at some point, your role is going to be over. And I know we th sometimes think, well, I wish it would last longer. I wish grandma would have been long around longer or my child or whatever. But the Bible says all of those roles are going to work together for good. Okay, so that's where we got to leave it is God loves us more than we'll ever know. And then number two, there's going to be a time for all of us to go. All of us are going to die at some point. Nobody is going to live forever. And so what we have to do is live a full life, not just necessarily a long life. Amen? Come on, live a full life. Live your life fully for God right now. Go all in. Don't compromise. And so if today was your last day, no regrets. Can I hear an amen? Come on, somebody say, no regrets. 
All right, let's go to it. Verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports. Come on, somebody say he heard the reports. He heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, we learn a little bit about the superstition here. We're going to find out that he is going to attribute the miracles of Jesus to somehow Jesus being uh, a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Now, what's weird about that is that we start off the chapter hearing that he thinks Jesus is a reincarnation or a ghost of John the Baptist, and that's why he can do miracles. And at the end of the chapter, when Jesus is walking on water, the disciples are going to think he is a ghost. What this does is gives us a little insight into their worldview. And so they believed in ghosts. They believe either in reincarnation or versions of that. And they also believed in resurrections. So he has a miraculous worldview. He sees the world in a way where miracles can happen. But instead of attributing to Jesus as the Messiah, he thinks to himself, this might be that prophet that I was so afraid of and finally was manipulated into killing. This might be him actually raised from the dead. So that's how we hear this story beginning to be introduced to us, because now it's going to tell us how John the Baptist died. But the reason why it's told to us is it's told to us in the context of what does this leader think about Jesus' miracles. What this leader thought about Jesus' miracles is maybe he's John the Baptist whom I beheaded. Maybe he's that guy raised from the dead. Another thing to understand about Herod the Tetrarch is he's the same one that has Jesus on trial. So this guy went to Judgment Day responding for murdering two uh, people. And now you can only imagine the hellfire that's awaiting him if he didn't repent. Okay, so he was going to be held accountable for both Jesus and John the Baptist. But let's now hear the story about how John the Baptist literally lost his head. Look at verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have here have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. A couple things we realize right here is that they were having some kind of an affair and remarried, divorced their original spouses, and now John the Baptist is preaching against this governmental leader that obviously had the authority to kill him, but he didn't have any fear of that. He didn't have any fear of man. He preaches against this person until he is arrested. So just a couple things that we learn right here is that we are to preach to political powers. We are not to be afraid to call out sin in political powers. And now in our day and age, like sometimes people say, well, we don't have kings and queens, but it's kind of like we do. We have sports and entertainment because those sport players and those entertainers, we look up to like they're, like they're royalty, you know. Don't say anything about Oprah. Don't say anything about Ellen. Don't say anything about Michael Jordan. That's my boy, you know. Don't say anything about the Cubs, whatever. And, and the thing is we let these people influence our lives while they're living all these wicked lives, you know, do all these wicked things, and here we learn from John the Baptist that we should not be afraid to confront them. And so he did that even knowing he could get arrested and put into jail, and he eventually was. And then what we see is that Herod wanted to kill him, 
but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. And so just like politicians today do whatever is popular, that's what these people did back then. And so you can look back uh, when it was popular to be more strong on immigration. You can look back on Clinton preaching about border control. You can hear uh, Obama saying the same thing. He, he sent out more illegal immigrants than any president. You know, And so they follow popular opinion. When homosexuality in the country was mostly unpopular, uh, unpopular Obama was against same-sex marriage. The Clintons were against same-sex marriage. And then now you see they changed their opinion. And that happens with almost all politicians. And so we shouldn't be surprised when they do that. Here's something interesting that was brought up about John the Baptist that I heard from a preacher that I really respected. I was so disappointed he said this. This is what he said. He said, this is an example of why we should not get involved in politics or preaching against sin in politics because John, he believed, this preacher uh, coming out of Deuterectomy, Deuterectomy chapter 1 verse 2, okay, coming out of his rear, uh, he, he said, uh, you all didn't get that, you thought there was a book called Deuterectomy, it's actually called Deuteronomy, those of you who are up this morning, thank you for coming, I know it's 4th of July weekend, but you're here in church anyways, let's pay attention. So out of Deuterectomy chapter 1, verse 2, he said that John was supposed to be a disciple of Jesus. And John stuck his nose where it didn't belong, and he actually looks at this story as, here's an example what not to do. Don't be like John. Isn't that something? I actually respected this pastor. And so the idea that he was promoting was, is that political correctness is actually something you should follow. You should think about political correctness as a, a way to live because we as Christians shouldn't go around offending people. We shouldn't go around telling uh, political figures their sin or entertainers their sin. If they want to hear what we believe, then just come to our church. They'll come to our church. Don't go out there. Don't stand in front of Herod's palace and do these things. Otherwise, you're going to get arrested and lose your head. Do you believe that way? Do you believe like that pastor believed? I hope not. Because this is actually not a story of something we're not supposed to be like. This is actually a description of exactly what we're supposed to be like. As we get into further chapters, we're going to see how much Jesus offends the people of his day to the point they crucify him. And then we're going to see that he starts to predict and prophesy over his own people, you too are going to be crucified. You too are be killed. He's preaching that to his very own disciples. So once again, if living like Jesus is wrong, I don't want to be right. Okay, so if the culture says doing this is wrong, I don't want to be right according to you because there's a true rightness and a true holiness that they are not participating in. So I'd rather be biblically correct than politically correct. Somebody put that on social media. Amen. Now the Bible says in verse 6 how he is going to actually get murdered because Herod wouldn't do it. He was a coward. He was an adulterer. Now it says in verse 6, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Everybody go, ugh. You don't have to have much of an imagination or watch too many crazy shows to know what's going on right here. I mean, this is dirty. This, this is like something you would turn your head away from if you were watching Game of Thrones or a movie or something. He now has a stepdaughter because of this relationship that he has adulterously started with this woman. Okay, He's taken his brother's wife, and now as having his brother's wife, he has what once used to be 
his niece, now is his stepdaughter. And stepdaughter starts dropping it like it's hot. Dancing perverted for her stepdad. That's what it means. There's a sexual connotation here that Herod was turned on. And so he looks at her incestuously, pervertedly, and basically says, whatever you want, I'm going to give to you. Now notice what happens here. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. A couple things that you see right here is that the woman was not here being taken advantage of by the man in any kind of way. The woman was just as guilty of of sin as the man was and was willing to use her power to manipulate to get her way, and she used her family to do it. And so we can see this oftentimes in our lives. People will manipulate. And it's not just a woman thing. It could be a man thing. People will manipulate to get their way because they think by manipulating the situation, they're actually changing the truth. And that's not true. You can't change truth by manipulating. You can get other people to believe your side. You can get everybody to feel sorry for you. You can twist things around. But that doesn't mean the truth changes. It doesn't matter how many people agree with with you if you're teaching something or believing something or doing something that's wrong. It doesn't matter how many see it that way. Once God has decided on it or has spoken his word to it, it is true. And so it doesn't matter if she gets rid of the messenger, the message still remains, doesn't it? She's still an adulterer, and her daughter is perverse. And probably daughter didn't fall too far from the tree of perverseness from her mama. Amen. I used to work in the inner city, and oftentimes I would see these little kids dropping it like it's hot. And I would be like, man, mom, don't you have a problem with it? And then the next song comes on, mom starts dropping it like it's hot too. Well, that's how sin is. Sin's hereditary. You learn sin from your family. You learn sin. You can learn sin from people you respect and honor. It doesn't matter who they are in your life. They could be a mom. They could be a grandma. You can be influenced to sin by their actions. Don't follow them. Follow God. And then the next thing that we see in verse 8 is it says, you know, she didn't even say kill him, you know, dispose of him, you know. No, it's bring me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. How sadistic and violent do you have to be to literally say, cut off a person's head, bring it up here on a platter, right? That is wicked. That is evil. But this shows us the human heart removed from restraint. Think about how we are just right now in this culture. If you've watched anything to do with the abortion movement, if you've watched anything with the LGBT movement, I'm telling you, if they could, if they could, they would cut off our heads. Not all, but many. Have you seen the video with the man screaming at me when I was on the streets? Did you see how angry he was? I'm telling you, if it wasn't for the camera that was there, he probably would have done things, and I would have defended myself by God's grace. But but he would have gone there. And if the law said Christians have no rights, what do you think he would have done? What do you think people would do in America right now, right now, if the law was passed, Christians do not have rights? Some of our folks are going out preaching today at the Pride Parade. How long do you think it would take for them to be done just like they were in Sodom and Gomorrah's time? Either gang raped 
as a, as a sign of domination and humiliation. Other countries and different cultures have done that as a way of subjecting the men to their power and their control. How long do you think it would take before they were speared through like Philip was going to preach the gospel in India or beaten to death as Timothy was and other disciples were? Just imagine today if they said in America, Christians have no rights. How long would it be before people would say, give me your head? Give me your pastor's head on a platter. I don't think the human heart has changed, is what I'm trying to say. I think we have been just as wicked as we have always been. Just in the time of Adam and Eve to the very next story, we see that Cain kills his brother Abel simply over an offering, a jealousy thing, that God accepted one and not the other. And then we begin to see all that happened in Noah's day, and it was marked by violence. And so fast forward here, the Jewish people are being controlled by the Roman government, and the Roman government props up some of their own Jewish people to be their kings and leaders, like their regional governors. And here we can see that these guys were so corrupt that just because of a preacher was saying, you're in adultery. You are in sin. They said, now bring me his head. See, today we have to pray for boldness because a lot of great pastors that I admire who have already passed on have warned us that we may see persecution in our lives. People like Steve Hill, David Wilkerson, all of these like Lester Sumrall, and I can name a lot more, have said to this generation, And now to the younger ones, be careful because you may lose your rights right here and now. In this country that you think is so amazing, and I agree with you, we're celebrating 4th of July. Praise God. I love to rub that into the English's face. We won. We beat you. You can have your tea. We got our guns. Amen? And uh, we, we are thankful to be Americans, but if we are not careful... We can lose our rights in this country. So be politically involved and make sure when you're voting for people, you're not just voting for this because they'll use this to get you to give up your rights. Make sure that when you're voting, you're voting based on your Christian principles. You're based upon your Christian lifestyle because they're going to try to take away your rights. That's not a make-believe story. That is not just me being alarmist. It is very true. Right now in different courts, there, there is lawsuits going on because Christian bakers have said, we'll bake any cake for you. We don't care who you are, where you come from, but we don't want to put on your cake things that are against our religious values. And now they're taking them to court where you used to be able to go to any, any store and you would see on there, free to reserve the right to refuse service because private businesses should be able to do that whether you like it or not. And then you just go to the other baker. It's not like there's not other bakers. And if you can start your own bakery shop, you start your own bakery shop. And then the same thing is now with freedom of speech. In Canada, one of these men went, he's African-American, so he doesn't fit the model of white privilege. He's African-American, and he goes to the gay community just to preach, doesn't even do what's called hate speech, which, by the way, there is no such thing as hate speech. There's only free speech. And if you threaten somebody, then that's not any kind of thing that falls under free speech. It's a different thing of threatened. But simply saying, I don't agree with your lifestyle, that's not hate speech. That's not a threat to you. Do you understand? Okay. So listen, they arrest him in Canada, and then they begin to harass him and take away his rights, even though he was abused by the people there, even though they touched him and did all of these things, they brought him to jail, and now he's fighting that. And so we could be here all day on what's going on in other nations, other places, and things that are happening now even with businesses. Just another example, Chick-fil-A 
is owned by Christians, and they make their faith known, just by doing that, cities have now tried to prevent them from even coming into their airports or into their cities to do business. Mariano here, as an alderman who I had met in Wicker Park, went and tried to fight to have Chick-fil-A not even be able to start a business in that area. Thank God they couldn't stop them, but isn't that something? That's in your generation, people. So you think I'm being an alarmist? You think I'm being an alarmist that, that, that you know, people aren't going to one day ask for your head on a platter or put you in jail or take away your job? No, this is where we're at right now. And once again, we as Christians, we're not persecuting anybody. We're just simply calling out sin. It's not like John the Baptist was saying, you know, take down Herod, kill him, do all these violent things to him. No, he was just saying, Herod, you're in sin. You're calling yourself a Jew. You're ruling over our people. You're in charge of our temple and religious order here. And you're getting away with blatant sin. You shouldn't do that. Cost him his head. So let's go to the story now. She says, give me his head on a platter. And then the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. It's a sad story, isn't it? But it gives us courage. Because if John the Baptist, somewhere in his 30s, that means I'm about 10 plus years older than him, if John the Baptist in his 30s could lay down his life for Jesus, I can today. And today there are Christians around the world that are suffering for Jesus. Some of the major nations are North Korea, China, India, and then other places in the Middle East like Syria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran. And they're giving up their lives for Jesus. And so we should be able to look to the Bible and not say, oh, you know, just don't bother anybody and everything will be okay. No, we should look to these examples and say, Lord, give us boldness. For by weather, by life, or by death, our lives belong to you. We gladly serve you. Everybody say martyrdom. 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 Amen. Now we're going to see miraculous powers and hopefully tie it all together. Let's go to verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat private to, private, privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed the sick. So he keeps going. That's what I want to tell you guys. Don't get so caught up in conspiracy and politics that you stop preaching the gospel. Because some of you can be so politically involved, you're always watching this, you're always watching this, and before you know it, you're watching Alex Jones and InfoWars, and you're, and you're thinking they're poisoning our water, they're poisoning the sky. You know, you just get so, you know, conspiratorial. Focus on Jesus. By the way, the Bible already told us it's going to go down and be crazy, so you can't stop it. Okay, I know we're supposed to expose darkness when we can, but I mean this idea that you're always trying to find the next thing, the next thing. You're not stopping the Antichrist. He's coming, folks. Okay, the mark of the beast, it's coming. So let's do what, what is best for this culture and keep preaching the gospel. And when we have some evidence, let's put it out there. Amen. Somebody's like, oh, I got evidence. I got evidence. Okay, no, I don't want to watch your two-hour movie about the Illuminati. I'll trust you to handle that. You figure that out, Okay. But they went with Jesus, and Jesus goes back to healing the sick and having compassion on people. Praise God. He loved them. He took care of them. Look at this, verse 15. As evening approached, so that means he was preaching pretty much all day, the disciples came to him and said, 
This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. The disciples thought they were being helpful. Like, hey, Jesus, uh, I don't know if you realize this, but you just preached all day. And we're out here in the hot desert or wherever they were, and, and we don't have any food, Jesus. I think you should shut down the sermon now, Jesus. It's been about 8, 10, 12 hours, however long. Shut it down, Jesus, and send them home. Look what Jesus says. They don't need to go away. <laughs> That's what I need to say today around 4 o'clock when you guys are ready to go. After I preached all, all about six hours, and then Lauren might come up, we need to let them go. No, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. I love how Jesus took kind of like their busybodiness or their well-intentioned error and turned it right back on them and said, do you even know who I am? I'm God among men. I'll give them something to eat if I want to, so I don't need you to remind me of where they're at. So, But since you're so worried about it, you're all up in the business here, why don't you fix the problem then? You do something about it. We're, you know, we're not just going to send them away. Feed them. He puts them out there like that. And then verse 17 says, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fishes. And now John 6 the surround sound of the Gospels tells us where they got that bread and fishes from. Where was that given to them from or by? A little boy, right? He had faith enough to say, this is all I have. I brought some snacks to church. I'm doing good, but I need to share it now, I guess. I have no problem. I'll share my snacks. Then Jesus says, bring them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Some estimate 20,000, upwards of 20,000 in total. How many believe in miracles? How many believe that actually happened? I know I do. I've seen miracles happen. Maybe not that exact one, but I know God can do this. The one who made the entire universe, including the molecules and all of the atoms that make bread, was right there with them, and he could, he could hit command copy, command paste over and over and over again. Because if I asked you right now on your computer... Could you take a picture of a loaf of bread and copy and paste it 5,000 times or 20,000 times? Could you do that? Yeah, you could do it right now in 30 seconds. And that's you as a creator manipulating a creation of a computer program. Well, who's the creator of bread? Who's the creator of atoms? That's God. And scientists still need God to do science, don't they? We've talked about that here many times before. So miracles to us is not God violating some law. God is not violating a law. God is just adding in extra laws that we don't know about. So it's not like God made that one piece of bread somehow be 5,000 pieces of bread at the same time it was five. That's violating the law of non-contradiction. That's not what he did. It's not like we're saying that God violates laws. No, what we're simply saying is whatever bread is made of, we know to get it through weed and all these things. God just said, I'm going to now bring this new law in, which is I'm the law of the creator. I'm the creator law. 
can do whatever I want. So he just created molecules, atoms at that moment. No contradiction. You couldn't do it without the miraculous power of God. And so the miraculous power of God, remember this, is not God breaking laws, it's him inserting laws. And that's why I always love to give the example, we have broken no laws by doing copy and paste over and over and over again, because every time we copy and paste, we're making a new thing from the original. How does God make new things? He does it from his creative power. Can I hear an amen? And what we know here is that there is stuff left over. And so God not only gives us enough, he gives us more than enough. Part of my heart here is to go through the Bible so you guys can understand it. I know at this point I could just preach my little heart out about how God's going to provide. Don't get scared. Give him what you got. He'll multiply it. You'll have more left over. And that's for another day. That's for another time. Because if I preached on every single part of the Bible like a preacher would in a sense and didn't teach it, we would never get through this. And what I want you to notice is that right now we're about halfway through. There's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew, and we're at chapter 14. And I wanted during this sermon series to bring you through the stories of the Bible, not trying to uh, entertain you with them, even though every now and then, you know, I'll feel the preach come on, but for you really to get it in a sense like you understand what happened. And what's important here to understand is that Jesus is the creator. As Moses asked God to feed the people and manna came from the earth during the time of the wilderness, Jesus, the God of Moses, is here and is able to make it rain bread in front of everybody. That's the sign that they're supposed to get here, is that someone greater than Moses is here. Moses needed God to do something, and here God is now doing the something. And the leftovers show that God always has more than enough, and he cares about our needs. And so what would have been the better way for the disciples to come? Because it is good to care about your children being hungry and so forth. The disciples should have came to him and said, Jesus, how can we help you feed these people when you're ready to feed them? You see the difference? One is coming to them almost like worrying. Jesus, I I don't know if you were paying attention after you were preaching to them for eight hours, but they're actually hungry and we're really away from the places where we can get food. You see, instead of coming with the problem, they should have came with the solution. And as you're going to see here on Jesus walking on the water, they still don't get it. And we can't be upset with them, but it takes them a while to understand who Jesus is. And I know us who even have the scripture, sometimes we don't remember who Jesus is. Let me ask you like this. Do you come to Jesus telling him your problems or do you come glorifying him as your answer? Do you see the difference? See, you might come to Jesus in your time of prayer and go, God, I I don't know if you know this, uh, but I'm going through a really hard time and I don't have money to pay these bills and these people over here don't like me and I don't know what to do. Maybe you just want to send me on over here and just tell me to do this. You know, give me, you know, Jesus, I'm going to give you some suggestions. That's not how we should pray. That's how the disciples talk to Jesus. And remember, talking to God is prayer. So in one sense, they're praying to Jesus. They're communicating with Jesus. They're communicating these problems out of their doubts and fears. How should we come to Jesus in prayer? Jesus, I know that you hold the whole world in your hands. You are a good God. You care for me. I ask you now to provide for me in your way and in your timing. According to your word, I trust you, O God. See, isn't that a different way to communicate? That's what we're supposed to learn from this. Let's go to Jesus walking on water. You all ready to moonwalk with Jesus? All right, come on. Look at verse 22. 
Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Why is Jesus doing this? If you remember from chapters earlier, he keeps trying to pray. He has tried about three or four times to go by himself to pray. He tried to go by the lake to pray. They all showed up. He tries to go to a house to pray and and spend time in his prayer closet. They all show up. He has now gone out to the wilderness to go out to pray. They all show up. Now, finally, he's like, y'all got to go. It's like midnight. Go. He sends them on the way. Go. Get in the boat, Peter. Peter's like, no, I want to stay with you. He's like, no, Peter, you got to go. Go, son. And and this is not telling us that Jesus doesn't want to be with us. Don't take that so literal because he says, I'm where you are, okay? But the idea is Jesus as a man couldn't do two things at once. Just like we can't do two things at once. He limited himself as a man. He is truly the son of God, eternal, equal with the father, always in fellowship with him. But as a man, he had a brain. And he had to operate with that brain, okay? And he could not keep talking to Peter and talk to his father at the same time. Now, I'm sure in his heart, he was listening and having conversations and talking to the Father, just like we can have inner dialogue with the Father, but he had to actually shut down outside voices and say, I've got to hear from my Father, and I want to talk to my Father. So he sent them on their way, and he goes up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Let me ask you this. If it is this important for Jesus to pray, the Son of God. How important is it for you to pray? I got to dismiss my wife and kids, put them in bed, and then I go by myself and pray. You need to do that sometimes. Some wives are like, I don't know about like being dismissed. No, my wife dismisses me, her husband, and she dismisses the kids so she can pray. You've got to dismiss people. You've got to make time to get alone and pray. Prayer is good as an inner dialogue, and we should do that throughout the day. But you need alone time with God. Your voice needs to speak to him. You need to hear your own words talking to the living God. You need to take time to get in postures of prayer, kneeling and laying down in his presence or worshiping. You need to do it not just for a few moments. You need to do it for an extended time. That's why I encourage every single Christian to try to pray at least an hour every single single day by themselves. Jesus did that. I'm so thankful that he set the example for us in everything, including prayer. Then it says later that night, he was there alone. Praise God, Jesus finally got alone time. I love that. He's communing with the Father. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Verse 25, Shortly after dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Remember this idea that they would have superstitiously? It's a ghost. Herod thought Jesus was the ghost of John the Baptist. So we see that they had the wrong idea about who Jesus was continually. That's why in the next couple of chapters, Jesus is going to ask them, who do people say that I am? And literally, some are going to say, you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some people are going to say, you're just a ghost, you're a spirit. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And they're like, uh, Peter responds back, and he goes, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Amen. Do you know who Jesus is? 
They say it's a ghost and cried out in fear. Ah, what's going on? But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. How many are happy Jesus knows how to calm our fears? Fear is one of the most trickiest things you'll ever deal with in life. Those of you who have dealt with anxiety, you relate to this. You know, fear is a liar. It just deceives you. And oftentimes, you need somebody to tell you, take courage. Do not be afraid. And I know that, you know, the world mocks this now. They, they think that's not going to work. You know, you need medication. You need counseling. But honestly, when you reduce fear down to what it is, it is false information appearing as real or false evidence appearing as real if you break down fear. And so we should be receptive to people saying, you're afraid because you're believing false evidence. Now, it may not go away for you. You may need to train your brain, and that's okay. And you may need to go to a doctor and all of that. But the bottom line is, at some point, we all need to take courage and not be afraid. It is going to be our choice. And what I love here is that Jesus says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, Peter, how many love Peter in the Bible? You know what's going to happen here. Come on, how many love Peter? Look what Peter says. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. How many of you would be that courageous? Some of you would be like, even if it is you, Jesus, I'm staying on the boat. You come here, Jesus. You just come on over here, okay? Peter cries out. He says, Lord, man, if this is really who, who you are, and you are really here with us, this is not a ghost, and you're walking on water, I want to walk on water with you. That should be the heart of all disciples. I want to do what Jesus is doing. This is where we kind of shun this mentality of, oh, nobody is perfect, you know, only Jesus. If Jesus did not want us to do what he's doing, why does he set it up so perfectly for us? We're not born perfect, but we could be born imperfect. We can't walk on water by ourselves, but with Jesus we can walk on water. Well, let me just say this before I go on with the rest of the story. People have naively tried to do this in other countries and have actually even died. Sometimes people who get the gospel from missionaries read this and then they think to themselves, well, if Jesus is real, I should be able to go out in the middle of the ocean here and just start walking on water even though I don't know how to sin and uh, swim and they die. We do not take the stories of Jesus and apply them to our life unless Jesus has applied them to our life. The teachings of Jesus are applied to our life, but the stories are applied to the people in the narrative. You have to know the difference between the stories and the teachings. Teachings are for everybody. The Sermon on the Mount is for everybody. Parables for everybody. When Jesus says, come, that's just for Peter. Do you guys get that? That's not for everybody. So don't go jumping out the boat thinking Jesus owes that to you. When he hasn't spoke to you, come. So he speaks to Peter, come. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Could you imagine what it felt like to be Peter that day? To watch your Lord and Savior walking on water, for you to resolve your doubts and to call out to him and say, if that's you, tell me to come, Jesus, because wherever you are is where I want to be. If you're in the middle of a storm walking on water, I would rather be with you than safe in a boat trying to protect myself. Jesus, I love you so much. I just want to be where you are. Tell me to come to you. And he said, come. And the Bible says Peter walked on water. And the old preachers say it like this. 
It's not that H2O lost its properties. Remember, Jesus is not breaking laws. It's just there was another property built into the universe at that time on C-O-M-E, and that was the power of the Word of God. See, H2O didn't change properties. It was still there. Fish were still swimming. It didn't become concrete all of a sudden. No, it's just in the code, a law superseded the law of H2O being liquid, which is the word C-O-M-E could hold up a person. Because once again, what, what holds us up now? You say the earth. What is the earth made of? We start going all the way down back to where we were before in the bread scenario. It's molecules. It's atoms. It's, it's all of these small things we don't know about. Well, can God place them anywhere he wants and make them solid? Absolutely he can. And can't he do that out of honor for his son who just wanted to catch up with his boys after he was praying and said, Father, do I have your permission to, to do a little dance here on the water? And Father says, go on that water, son. Go and catch up with them. And then while he's catching up to him, Peter's like, hey, can I come out there with you? And he's like, you sure can. Come. And he starts to walk on the water towards Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. You see, this is such a key here. Our stories are not like fantasies. You know, if you read other um, stories about these kinds of things, myths and all of this, it just gets weird and taken out of the context of the real world. But here, it's very real. Peter, walking on water, gets scared. Well, why do you think that happened? Well, have you ever walked on water? No. Have you ever done it in the middle of a storm? No. So he's doing it based on the faith that he had at the beginning, that if it's Jesus, he'll allow him to do it. But as he's doing it, he begins to lack the trust that he can keep doing it. How often do we fail in that same exact way? How often do we start doing something with God, believing that God is able to do it, but somewhere in the process, we take our eyes off of God, stop walking on the word, and start trusting ourselves again. And what usually is the motive of that? Fear. So God says, I want you to be single, and I want you to walk on the word of singleness and being single-minded towards me. And then we do it for a few years after coming to church. We're single. We're not, you know, perverted anymore. We're not doing any of those things we shouldn't do. And then all of a sudden, we start to get afraid. Maybe I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. Maybe I need to step off the word of God, step onto my own thinking. And then what starts to happen? We start to sink. And so whereas pornography or dating bad people was never a problem the years prior, the places prior we had been, now it is a problem. Now we're sinking. What has changed? God's word? No. God's presence? No. God's, God's love for us? No. What has changed is our obedience to God's word. So do you want to walk on the water with Jesus? Yes, I do. We're going to use this now a little bit figuratively, and that's okay. If you want to walk on the water with Jesus, you have to keep walking on his word. You can't give up on your marriage because things are going wrong and you hear the wind and you get scared because that's when your marriage is going to sink. You can't do that now in your career. You can't do that in the church and say, well, I don't know if this is the right church for me because they're rebuking me and I'm getting afraid. Maybe they don't care about me, whatever. You don't give up. You stay on God's word. And that's why he corrects him because he doesn't just say to him, dude, that's so awesome, high five. He corrects him immediately. He says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught him, thank, thank God he saved him. And he said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? 
Now, how many know that would probably be one of the easiest questions to answer? Why did I doubt? I'm walking on water. I got scared, Jesus. This doesn't come natural to me. Not everybody came from heaven to earth and looks at this earth as a playground, Jesus. We actually get scared of things out here. Of course I doubt it. What did you think I was going to No, but here's the point. What Jesus is saying is, why are you doubting when I'm here? Why are you doubting once you already were doing it? And that's a question that we always have to ask. Why are we doubting when Jesus is here? Why are we doubting when we know God has already said it and it's already even performed? The word has already performed and showed us that he's faithful. So the idea is we have to check our faith. Now, I'm not going to make anyone here feel bad if you have lack of faith. But I am going to tell you this. We are responsible for the amount of faith we have. Oftentimes, the most angry Jesus gets with his disciples is with their lack of faith. It's almost as if Jesus expects us to see the world the way he does. And when we don't, he reprimands us. And isn't that just the truth about it, though? Jesus actually created this whole place. He considers it like his garden. He considers us his creation. The most powerful forces known on this earth are the things he put in place. And he's asking you, do you trust me enough in your life to walk you through the waves and the storms and to keep you safe? And that's what it's always going to come down to. Whether you're facing cancer, whether somebody you love has forsaken you, whether people leave you, whether you, you lose money, a recession happens, it is always going to come down to this. Do you believe that the one asking you to walk on the water in the midst of winds and waves is the one who created the water and the winds and the waves, including you as well? Every time we lack faith, it's because we lack trust in him. And so I don't look at this and blame him because you know some of those disciples, they might have been snickering when he came in all soaking wet. Oh, look at you, Peter. Thought you were going to be cool walking on water with Jesus. Look at you. Look what happened to you, Peter, man. Look, how you doing now, man? Because, you know, Peter might have came out and be like, yo, man, look at me, you know, and then start stinking. But what would be the best comeback that Peter could say back to any of those disciples who made fun of him? The best comeback would be, at least I got out the boat, man. Come on, least I got out the boat. Somebody needs to put that on Facebook. I may fall, but least I got out the boat. I may get scared, but least I got out the boat. Come on. I, I may have gotten a little bit wet, but at least I got out the boat. God is looking for people that trust him enough to get out the boat. This doesn't give us permission to stay in little faith, but even if we fail because of little faith, at least we're out the boat. Because if Peter had little faith and that little faith let him walk and sink, what do you say about the kind of faith that the disciples had that even get out the boat? They must have real small, you know, un pequito faith, very itsy bitsy faith. Peter had enough faith to get out and walk on water with Jesus. As they climbed in, uh, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now watch this, verse 33. Here's a hint of the, of the divinity of Jesus. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Wow. He went from being a ghost to a resurrected version of John the Baptist to somebody that's just a good man or a prophet. 
He went from all of these misunderstandings to a moment they catch it and they go, you are God. We worship you. Sometimes Muslims and other religions say, what is it saying in the Bible? Jesus said, I am God, worship me. He doesn't have to say those exact phrases. All he has to do is let you worship him as God, and that proves he thought of about himself as God. Because we see in the Bible that when people try to worship men or angels, they prevent them. In Revelation, don't worship me, worship God alone. When they try to worship Peter, don't worship me, worship God alone. And here Jesus allows them to worship him. Of course, he's not walking around boasting in himself. He never even says, I am the Messiah, Messiah, follow me. He lets other people call him God. He lets other people call him the Messiah. He lets other people make their decisions. His, his plan for his ministry was always shrouded in a mystery. And it was up to you whether or not that veil would be taken off. That's why he said, who do people say I am? And it comes out, you're the son of God and the Messiah, both. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The Messiah is God with us. Now turn quickly with me to uh, Exodus. Let's see how big of a deal this is. And maybe we'll start to understand why he gets crucified. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 3. The Ten Commandments. How many have heard of those before? Are they called the Ten Suggestions? No, come on. Ten Commandments. Look at verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath it or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or what? Worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Well, we have a problem now, don't we? Either Jesus is the God of the Jews, or there's another God being worshipped by Jews. Which one is it? Is Jesus the God of the Jews, or is there now another God that the Jews are now worshiping, and this is idolatry? Go back to the passage, please. They worshiped him and called him the Son of God. Sometimes people think the title Son of God means he is lesser in divinity than Father God. No, I am Father human, and Lucas is Son human. What are we both? Human. If Father God is God and he is the Son of God, what is Jesus? God. Now somebody says, well, aren't we now called sons and daughters of God? Does that now mean we're gods? Yes, and now it's time to worship each other. No, I'm kidding. Are you paying attention? No, there's a cult called Mormonism that believes that. What's the difference between us being called sons of God and Jesus being called son of God? Go to John 3.16. Let me answer some questions that maybe you're not even asking yet, but somebody you know might. So I want to give you some answers. Look at John chapter 3, verse 16. It's a famous passage, right? Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his what? His only begotten son or one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, hold on. How is it God only has 
one son, but then in other places of the Bible, like in Romans and Galatians, we are now called sons, and then obviously daughters are added into that. Is there a contradiction? No. This is how it works. God became man so that man might become like God. The son of man became like us so that sons and daughters of men might become like him, sons and daughters of God. As we have already studied in Ephesians, in that sermon series, everything we do is now in him. He gives us his DNA. He gives us the ability to share in his divinity. But there is truly only one son of God, that is Jesus. We are all just copies of him sharing in his DNA. Are you listening? Let me just give you another couple examples of that. Go to Second uh, Peter. Because sometimes people don't uh, read the Bible when they read the Bible. Am I telling the truth here? They get confused, right? Come on, have you ever been confused? Yeah, look at Second Peter. Let's be unconfused. Look at Second Peter, chapter 1. The Bible says that we participate in the divine nature. Verse 4. Through these he has given us, talking about Jesus, his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. How do we get to participate in it? Because of what Jesus did for us. We don't get it on our own. We only get it from him. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Now go to Romans. Just another place to confirm this. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 will explain how we become sons and daughters of God. It is not outside of Jesus. It is because of Jesus. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8. Let's say, um, oh, there's so many good things here. Let me just go all the way to the end. We don't have time to get, I, I, you know, I look at chapter 8 and verse 1. I want to start there. But let's just go all the way down to verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. That fits into what we were talking about before. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We've read that before here, haven't we? And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And then one more thing, lastly, in closing, let's go back to the passage. And Rachel, would you come, please? Is some people might say, well, the angels at times are called sons of God. They're called sons of God. Yes, the angels are called sons of God once again because Jesus made them. Jesus, the Bible said, made them to be his messengers, to be his representative, but they have no attribute, no being without him being. But here's the difference between angels and men. He never became an angel to save angels. He became a man to save man. So we are made in the image of God, and they are just a creation to be a messenger of God. And the Bible actually says they are our servants. They are our ministers. They are moved on behalf of our prayers. In other words, they're our servants. We're over the angels, the Bible says. So think about how awesome this is. He is worshiped. As the Son of God. Do you worship Jesus as the Son of God equal with the Father? I hope that you do. Verse 34, when they crossed over, they landed at Gennarisset. 
And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Jesus had so much power flowing through him that if you just touched his clothes, you were healed. Earlier on, we heard about the woman with the issue of blood. When she touched Jesus, she was healed. This actually even happens in the New Testament. Uh, They could take aprons or parts of the clothes of the apostles, and they could touch the sick, and they would be healed. I always warn people against this. You don't have to pay $1.99 with holy water and a cloth from a televangelist. But it is true, according to the Bible, that clothing and inanimate objects like staffs and other things that the men of God and people of God would carry could actually still contain the power of God. Why is that? Because the power of God is real in the universe, just like the power of electricity is real. And oftentimes those would have residues. You know, for better or for worse, that's why the Roman Catholics keep relics. The only problem is now they worship those relics and they treat that as if it's some kind of superstitious thing. These were people who walked and talked with Jesus, and I don't believe we have any of their relics here. Some people might ask about the Shroud of Turin. There's a lot of interesting research on that. Some people that I respect actually believe that is Jesus' shroud, but I don't think there's any power left in it for us to use. It's been 2,000 years, and maybe God's power has dissipated. I don't know how it works, but just don't be superstitious. I would say if you were in the time of Jesus, touch Jesus. Even if you get his cloak, he'll heal you. And if you were in the time of the apostles, go for it. And if they send you a hanky, put it on your sick body and to be healed. I just want to warn you against superstition. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Amen. But at the same time, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. So let's not, you know, look down on these people who believe that cloths and the things Jesus touched could heal them or war. No, no, no. Let's not look down on it. Let's read through it. Let's take it very serious. But also understand we're 2,000 years removed from that now. Can I hear an amen? Amen. That's for your benefit and for mine that we don't get uh, taken advantage of. Because it would be real easy for me to start praying over cloths and selling them to you, right? Pastor Joe cloth, $199. If you want the Pastor Joe robe, it's $100. You know what I'm saying? Like you're shaking your head, you know. I can start making a lot of money off y'all selling cloths after this verse. That's why you got, you, got, you got to have two sides on most. This is, this is, by the way, a way of interpreting Scripture. Most Scriptures are going to be interpreted with two rails. There's going to be two rails that keep you on the road so you don't go to one ditch or to the other. Okay, What's the one rail over here? God used inanimate objects to heal people, even his clothing, and the apostles sent handkerchief. That's a rail. Don't go past that rail and try to become a naturalist and explain everything through science and say, if I can't explain through science, and this is bogus because you're going to go off the rail and disbelieve the Bible. But then over here is the other rail that says, just because it happened here doesn't mean now it's going to happen when Jesus gives you his holy undies, Okay. Because the Mormons wear holy underwear. That's a whole nother. I could give you here on all kinds of crazy things the cults do, okay? But that doesn't mean now we run off over here and start selling everything and calling it holy. So you got you see how we interpret Scripture? Here's the two boundaries. One is here is God did it at that time. And then over here, it doesn't mean it happens all the time. Run down that lane. Somebody say stay in your lane. Amen. Let's close out with this statement here at the end. Today was a good teaching lesson, right? Whether we face martyrdom or experience God's miraculous powers, we need to always be faithful to love and serve Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today. 
Some today may be facing what seems like martyrdom, and others may be living out the greatest miracles of their life. Whether today we're like John the Baptist in a dungeon about ready to be beheaded, or Father, we are walking on the water, touching you and seeing miracles. May we all live for you and trust you. Father, give us strength to live for Jesus, your Son, and to not get discouraged when we face hard times, and to not let things take us away from your miracles and good times because we want to take over the wheel now and do it ourselves. As the band and altar workers come, can you just remain in a state of prayer and search your heart today? It's a great chapter, a lot of good nuggies, but apply it to your life. Are you facing any kind of uh, circumstances where you're persecuted and you are doubting and you're, you're feeling emotionally drained? Ask God to make you like John the Baptist today. Just because something bad is happening to you doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you've done something bad. Trust Jesus today with your life. And even if the worst case scenario happened and you didn't make it, guess what? You're going to go see Jesus. You're going to go see Jesus. That's what they used to say back in the old days. Even if you kill me, I still win because I go see Jesus. So if that's the worst possible thing that could ever happen. We die. The scariest thing, we die. What happens? We actually go meet Jesus. So everything else in between, losing job, losing money, going through hardships, facing divorce or a rejection, come on, be like John the Baptist today. Don't back down. And then those of you who are here, and it may be the same group because you may have both of these things going on, but those of you who are here today and, and you are in the miracle power of God, you are walking out a miracle, you are seeing it, you are like Peter on the water right now, you shouldn't have that job, but God favors you. You shouldn't be with that much money in your bank account at this age, but God's favored you. And all of a sudden, you're tempted now. Maybe I should do it this way. Maybe I should do it this way. I'm going to look to this direction. Look to that direction. Ask God to keep you staying in his path, on his word. Don't let fear move you. You know what the worst thing is after a bad decision? The right decision at the wrong time. Come on, somebody. One of the worst mistakes you'll make in life. I have a lot of young people here. Ask some of the older people here that have gray hair. It's not just bad, wrong decisions. What you will start to learn as you mature is that the second worst thing to make is the right decision, but at the wrong time. Yes, you're supposed to go to another job, but you get so afraid, you get too anxious, you get too bothered, you quit your job now, you try to do the other thing, and you leave you leave the will of God for your life, and you allow yourself to be attacked in ways God never meant for you. Ye a little faith, ye a little faith. Why do you doubt? Come on. Some of you know, well, I'm not going to be single forever. Yeah, but you get afraid of being single for too long. And then you grab that first dude that winks at you at the altar. He's not right for you or she's not right for you. And then you find yourself sinking in all this trouble and you're asking God, why, why, why? And he said, right decision, wrong time. I was going to have you find somebody at church. That's the right decision, but it's not that person. It's not that time. A few moments right now. Pray through this, saints. Let's walk and talk with Jesus today.